0: It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011.
1: So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes.
0: Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextwheelcom slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more.
1: Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add
0: to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day,
1: the hot rock and relic the better one plus members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes
0: we also record additional pre and post show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear like conversations about similarly themed movies and answering listener questions from our live member chat speaking
1: of our live member chat we record almost all of our episodes in discord where members can chat
0: right along with us live members get access to other members only channels in our discord community as well on top of all that members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private next Real feed just for them that includes all the shows in the next reel family the next Real, the film board movies we like sitting in the dark and more new projects on the way to top it all off members don't have to listen to ads we've already eliminated those annoying dynamically inserted ads that let's face it we all hate it we are listening to you we love podcasting for a living and those ads help to pay the bills now we're counting on you dear listener
1: we promise we aren't going back to those terrible dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all all we ask is that you consider supporting the NextReal family of podcasts with a membership.
0: Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership.
1: Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today.
0: I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson.
1: Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Eve's bayou is over. And where is daddy? He's never home. Memory is a selection of images. Some elusive.
0: Others printed indelibly on the brain. You love your daddy, baby. You know I do. It's all I need. You love mama? Your mama is the most beautiful woman I ever met. And I always love her. Oh.
1: We're talking about Eve's Bayou today, Andrew. We're starting up new series. What is our series? Why are we talking about this movie? Because we're so done with the raspberries. <laughs>
0: We finally finished the raspberries. Yeah, this, you know, this was the only decade where we were doing two uh, sets of series and largely because The Razzies was when we kind of threw in for fun. All the rest of them have been much more serious (laughs) awards. And uh, so we thought, you know, the Razzies are fine, but we got to do something else in the 90s. And this is the 1998 NAACP Image Awards. And for films that came out in 1997, specifically, we're going to be looking at four films that were that feature nominees for the outstanding lead actress in a motion picture. uh, Eve's Bayou, Jackie Brown love jones and soul food which actually has two of the nominees so we'll talk about those four films to cover those five nominees should be an interesting series
1: and who was the nominee we're looking at specifically in this movie
0: in this particular film lynn whitfield mom uh roz is the one who received the nomination
1: okay so eve's bayou what is your is, is this one of those movies that you put on all the time do you know much about it
0: I have seen this film uh, quite a number of times, saw this in the theater when it came out, and I've loved it ever since. And it's just a film I th- find captures a a world so uh, effortlessly. Like, it just feels like this world of, of, you know, through the eyes of a child, we're getting it. Uh, like, the voiceover gives us a sense of setting up the story and the idea of memories, and uh, we get this look at this key moment of this young girl's life that just kind of unfolds before us in a very effortless way and gives us a picture of her world at the time she was a child from looking back as an adult. And we really get this point in her life that is, you know, for her kind of a coming of age. It's kind of a very traumatic period of her life. There's a lot of things going on here. And so it's just a film that I've Always found powerful and, you know, for a first film, I mean, just I think Casey Lemons kind of came out of the gate um, swinging and and created something really special here. Better than anything else she's made.
1: Uh, Let's let's get it out of the way uh, and say uh, this is another one of those movies where I like the voiceover. (laughs)
0: speaking specifically to a recent movies we like episode where we talked about amelie and that was one where you said you also liked the voiceover
1: i also like the voiceover the thing about the voiceover in this one is that it fits the framing mechanism of the movie that it tells you something really important from the perspective of older Eve uh, that is, is we get to then watch play out over the passage of time. And it's interesting, you know, in our member pre-show, we were talking about Southern Gothic uh, films. And I wonder if this is a common trait we didn't mention in Southern Gothic is the use of voiceover in Southern Gothic films to tell the story of ancestry, right? There is so much that, that happens that is legacy in this, In in these kinds of movies, to me, that I wonder if this is a good example of something that is used much more broadly that we're just not I'm I'm not thinking about specifically, but it's really interesting in this movie, and I don't find it offensive at all because she is helping time pass through the voiceover in a way that that I think really works right up to the end.
0: Yeah, and it sets up such an interesting story. I mean, right out of the gate, we're getting a fantastic opening line. That gives you a sense of I'm looking back on a period in my youth and also something really dark happened, you know, the summer I killed my father. And you're like, what, what, what? And it sets you up for this story of this family. You meet the father. He's a philanderer, but he's a good father. And you're kind of getting a sense, okay, I can see, I get a sense of the family, but what is going to happen here? And that's it, like, it, it gives us this moment of telegraphing from the beginning. Without having to go in and explaining everything, like you don't get it coming in to just re-explain things. When it's coming in, it's kind of this hallucinatory conversation about what memory is and how sometimes it fades, but sometimes there are these key moments that, as she says there, that just are burned indelibly into the brain. And it just, I think that is why the voiceover is effective here because it's smartly used as uh, as a framing device, but a framing device that also kind of is a little elusive
1: yeah yeah i think that's uh i i think that's really it it's like it, it's a it, it feels like a piece of string i'm chasing that's being dragged across the room you know that and i think that that makes it work really really well so from the jump i think they set the world up in in a really interesting way uh you know then you you mentioned as you were kind of introducing it the 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 through the eyes of a child through the perspective of a child and i think the other thing that sets this movie up really really well is just through the course of the film how much it feels to me like we're hearing the dialogue from people important in eve's life from the perspective of her own memory not from the perspective of what they actually said and and i my primary piece of evidence is how often people threaten each other's lives. (laughs) Like (laughs) They're constantly saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Friends, family, they're all out to kill each other. And sometimes it's damn sinister when they do it. Sometimes it's if you ever tell this secret, I'll kill you, I will do you harm. That is super sinister from one of the most intimate relationships in the movie and uh but but sometimes it's just cavalier and i think that's an interesting piece uh that that i think through when you brought up you know from the eyes of a child that's what i get like so much of this is amplified because of her own sense of kind of spiritual uh existential anxiety and fear over what she knows
0: there's an element that i think definitely makes that work because she is a child, and that idea of yelling at your brother I'm gonna kill you and like i'm I'm so mad at you because you did something this thing like that's how kids talk like they're just saying things like that all the time, but when her aunt, as you were talking about, like actually threatens her when Moselle says that to young Eve like if you ever say say this, I will kill you i will do you harm like it's it's horrifying like scary whoa like and you can imagine how much an impression that makes on a young girl who is just like wasn't thinking in terms of it being as i mean obviously it is an issue it is something that they're all dealing with as far as everything going on with the dad but the way that suddenly that comes out of the ant's mouth it's just like whoa you know and and i think that's what that's what makes that an impressive moment that does feel different than when she's yelling i'm going to kill you to her brother or something
1: yeah for sure so i uh, that was me jumping way too far ahead to talk about this movie specifics of the movie that we i sh- before we even talk about what the movie is about uh <laughs> <laughs> and I realized we should probably set that up just a little bit, that Eve's Bayou is the story of this sort of family intrigue in which Eve, the youngest daughter, witnesses her father, played by Samuel L. Jackson, Jackson, uh, having an, an affair uh, with a, another woman and ends up the movie ends up building the case that he's quite a quite a ladies man he's the town doctor making house calls and his house calls are wink house calls uh (laughs) and uh and so it's a story of kind of the family unraveling leading to a confrontation with the other woman's husband that does poor samuel in over i mean i i agree with you i i really enjoyed the movie i think the performances are are incredibly strong we're going to talk a little bit about the actual camera later um which is really my only challenge with the movie and uh, other than that like these i think what they were able to capture out of these kids in their relationship and their relationship with their mom and their relationship frankly with Samuel Jackson with dad makes this movie I, I think, an exercise in the complexities of family that I think is is incredibly
0: powerful. Capturing a story that fits so perfectly into the idea of that Southern Gothic genre, it, it feels so perfectly in that space. But at the same time, Casey Lemons is telling, just like this... Really kind of incredible story of like a successful African-American community and a and a successful African-American family living down here by the bayou that like there's there's no sense of feeling like this has to be a story that is taking all of the. Uh, I'll just use a recent film as a as an example, American fiction tropes of like what mm-hmm. people typically would be wanting or expecting to see at this particular point in time in uh, stories about African-Americans. Like this is just a story about a family and family drama. And that's really what we're getting here. And I think there's so much that she captures in the essence of the kids of the coming of age story, uh, largely the two sisters, really this relationship between them and between each of them and their father as well, and their mother, too, who plays a big part. You know, she's a very protective mother. She's going through all of her own issues as she's battling the whole idea that her husband is sleeping with so many uh, people in town. And I think that all of this is woven really quite well through the perspective of a younger person like it doesn't ever feel like we're necessarily getting the story from the grown-ups perspective in our pre-show our members pre-show we were talking about southern gothic films one of the films that came up was to kill a mockingbird two films that i think very effectively capture telling a story through the eyes of a child which can be a challenging thing to do but i think both of them do it quite well like we're really getting the perspective of that view that worldview in both of these cases and i think that's that is one of the key elements here that makes this story uh, work so well
1: one of the things that's interesting about those comparisons is is that we don't need to have much of a conversation about whiteness in eve's bayou where racial injustice is the central sort of tentpole of mockingbird and i think that's i mean what you're getting to is is a really interesting point here that this is it really is a a a black story and there is no we don't have to have necessarily the conversation about the themes of racial injustice in this movie because this is really about the way this insular community deals with their own problems and maybe that's the discussion of racial injustice the fact that there is that it feels like such an a cultural island Uh, in 1962 that that's the examination that these people are are that they they have a thriving life and a thriving house call medical practice and also they have to deal with the darkness too in a way that would invite additional darkness if it was a conversation about the racial injection of law enforcement into their community you
0: know what i mean that's one of the reasons that i love this film so much because it just feels like it can exist and it's like these stories are allowed to exist it doesn't have to have all of that other stuff thrust into it like this can just be a story as it is and sometimes i feel like hollywood needs that reminder (laughs)
1: Right, right, right. (laughs) Sometimes it's just a movie about people who have affairs, affair people.
0: (laughs) Exactly, exactly. One of the other things that we talked about in the world of Southern Gothic, but it's that idea of a little bit of magical realism. And, you know, we certainly get some like mysticism here, uh, Aunt Moselle. And as we kind of learn over the course of the film, Eve certainly has a sense of something that has touched them as far as being able to look into people and see what's going to happen and everything. You get this this sense. You know, that's that's how Aunt Mazel seems to make money, is she kind of works as a psychic and helps people. Very different than when we meet El Zora, the woman who seems more voodoo-related, who she works at a little booth at the little downtown street market area. Diane Carroll's character, who, you know, has them, she reads the bones and all of this sort of stuff. It definitely feels... A little different. And then and then when Eve comes in and, and is talking to El Zora, like she's talking about how she built this little coffin for the hare and and with snakes all venom or and whatever, and she buried it in the swamp and all this like creepy stuff that feels very voodoo. Like that feels very much of this southern gothic world that ties into the magical realism and all of the stuff going on with their touch. But what I find so interesting about the portrayals in the film is how there may be something in the way that she's reading the bones and everything, but, the again, the way we're getting the story from Eve's perspective and everything that Elzora does, it seems like she's just doing it out of fun to spook this kid. Like, none of it seems real. And Eve doesn't get that, and she is so convinced that everything that just happened is the reason that her father is dead. And that's why, at the beginning, we get that great line, "'I killed my father.'" Because she thinks that, like, she's carried that, like, she believes that everything, she gave the hair to this voodoo woman who did all this stuff to it, and that's what caused her father to end up getting getting killed, which is very different than the power that she and Moselle have.
1: You know, that's sort of transitive, right? The responsibility of the death of their father is transitive because the final sort of confrontation between Eve and Sicily, it, when... The The question of sort of the fallibility of memory comes into play, right? Like the, the story is, was Cicely abused by her father somehow sexually or did Cicely lose control of her faculties and her father, you know, either way, her father hit her. Yeah. Uh, but the the motivation matters, and Sicily too carries the brunt of uh, responsibility. You sure. could make the case that the voiceover should have been Sicily the whole time. The summer I killed my father, right? Like, it, you know, once Sicily knows the the machinations of Eve and the voodoo lady, could she have? gone on and carried the responsibility of her father's death too like this this gets to the theme of legacy in these southern gothic films like this is a this is a movie that starts by calling out the fact that these kids are are ancestors of eve the spirit like the witch of the bayou i guess i don't i don't remember her specific namesake and she's named eve is named after the original eve but they she's talking about how you know that eve has this power of sight And that that power of sight is in the hands now of Eve and of Moselle. They also, you know, through touch can see things. So coming all the movie starts us with this conversation about coming back from the original Eve and leads through Moselle into the young Eve. And uh, and that is a massive legacy, right, of of generations of people who are both sort of empowered and saddled with the weight of knowing more than others in the world around them, of of always having to bear the responsibility of secrets. And I, I think that is such a, a wonderful sort of vibe that this movie carries through the through, you know, Moselle and through Eve, but also through, you know, the bone reading El Zora in the carnival area. Like I, I think it's it's a really fascinating part of this movie's culture.
0: Well, and it speaks to like toward the end of the film, Eve actually uses her sight with her sister Sicily, and she actually touches her hands, and she kind of sees the reality of what happened there. And it's I don't know. My perspective is that it seems like Sicily is the one who might have been just a little over the moon, and and is the one who initiated the kiss with her father before thinking through things, and then her father hit her. It so broke her the shame and the the feelings and everything that she can't she still can't admit what happened like she's just she was lost in it and just can't see that you know and i think that was an interesting perspective but that's something eve will now have to always carry and then the other thing and the voiceover never comes through and fully acknowledges this but I do think this is something else that Eve also must acknowledge to a certain extent, but likewise hasn't specifically said that this is what she did that killed her father, but she's the one who tells Lenny— maddie's husband or maddie yeah maddie's husband maddie is the one one of them that lewis is sleeping around with and she tells lenny that her father and her and his wife sure seem to be the same type of people and hanging out and coming home late and all this sort of stuff (laughs) giving him all of the information he needs to have the raging jealousy that leads to him confronting lewis and killing killing him yeah that is an element that in the scope of that opening line, you know, the summary was, and I killed my father or whatever. That is the uh, there's the there's the whole thing that she does with El Zora. That was her active plan to kill her father. And then this thing that she does with Lenny that she's not even thinking about as the reality as to what actually killed her father. And that's what I think is so interesting about that voiceover is like, has she internally actually figure that out yet or not or does she still like to block that fault of hers does she still internally as an older person blame it on the witchcraft
1: i think that's the culture of blaming it on the witchcraft right because whatever like she could bear witness to the shooting over and over and over again and still see that shooting happen as a result of the unseen hand of the witchcraft right like she was the first one to push over that domino and uh, and I think that makes it interesting. The uh, You know, there are some things about this movie that I can imagine. And I'm just sort of trying to step back a little bit as we're talking about it, that that the movie presents a really complicated perspective around, first of all, the complexities of infidelity. Right. Like the fact that we have Samuel L. Jackson uh, as his his character, his dad, who ostensibly is still very much in love with his wife and yet is consistently having affairs on her, right? That portrayal is complicated and hard to to watch depending on sort of what line of the, um, you know, polyamory spectrum you're on,
0: right? Well, but uh, and also the complexity of the character comes later in the film when he has that line that says so much, about his character when he says i need to be a hero sometimes that's my weakness and that's why he is in the profession as a doctor but also for a lot of these women like the one that we meet when eve is following him around doing house calls he has eve go wait outside because she needs a little something more and it's like there is this level to him that is trying to be helpful but also like this he just needs to feel needed in a bigger way than he can get from just being needed in a house. And that's, it makes for a really interesting, I mean, it's a broken character, but a really fascinating one.
1: Yeah, I, I think so too. And I think that also gets to some of the, It's sort of the entrance to this path of the film's treatment of uh, of women and, in fact, of victims. Right. This this the film does have a healthy helping of blame the victim mentality that I think is important to note. Right. That it's part of the story. So I like I don't want to present the perspective that this is the film advocating one way or another it's certainly not it but it's very much part of the story that that these that let's start with the doctor that you know without his his care like these women are coming on to him it's their fault for their neediness for his sexual healing we get into you know all the way at the other end of the spectrum to sicily's treatment like that letter that final letter that he writes to moselle is his perspective of what happened and perspectives are horribly unreliable, right? Because it's just his memory of an incredibly heated and emotional event. And I think I have a hard time when they read that letter out loud, believing that his testimony to Mazelle is any more true than Cicely's testimony, right? Like it becomes, because Cicely is a survivor, it becomes her responsibility to bear this horrible treatment by her father which may have been instituted by him right she was a child she was a child and that is a uh, that is really a, a horrifying legacy of this story and that these
0: characters have to bear and will always carry so much more weight because it's the same summer that he got killed yeah, and that exactly. is something they will never be able to reconcile with him. They'll never be able to talk about with him again. And so it will permanently be, and as she says, indelibly burned on the brain. Yeah, And yeah. it just, I mean, what a dark uh, kind of character journey that it takes us on with these young, young girls who right. are forced into adulthood Far too young.
1: Well, and the fact that these the questions of ambiguous morality are set up at the very jump, right at the very beginning, when we see the the affair, and those questions just pile up they linger and continue to pile up and by the end of the movie they are not answered and i think that is is a hallmark to the genre of just just ambiguous morality abounds Uh, you know asks you the viewer to question your beliefs on a lot of things and i think it just makes this movie extra heavy by the time we get to the to the end of it
0: one thing we haven't really talked too much about i mean we've talked a lot about the characters but the fact that casey lemon's writer-director putting this story in really i mean she's a a african-american female director telling a story largely focusing on the female characters and having a this female perspective woman's voice uh, dealing in this story about gender dynamics with sexuality betrayal i I find she's very effective at capturing it and in telling this world and i think that that's an important point we haven't talked a whole lot about lynn whitfield as the mom and i think it's interesting because you know she we're talking about this particular film because it fits into the NAACP Outstanding Actress awards. It's it's an interesting one because this is one of those films where you could argue, rightfully so, that Journey Smollett is the uh, protagonist of the story. She's our she's the lead actress of the film. Lynn Whitfield as mom, though she's the matriarch. She is in this scope of all of these these dirty deeds, everything happening. She is a solid center of the story and is the one who largely is trying to hold everything together, right? She's trying to keep the family together when she actually sits down with Uh, El Zora and has her reading done. She freaks out the fact that, you know, something might happen. Look to your children. She won't let the kids leave the house because she's afraid somebody's going to die. She is doing everything she can to keep her husband straight, to make sure that he's not screwing around as much because it's causing problems. She's trying to do all this stuff with the kids. But in the scope of what Lynn Whitfield is doing, it's so much more subtle. And and initially, you know, I, I've often thought as Journey Smollett as the core, she's the one who should likely have been considered as lead actress. But at the same time, watching it this time, looking at Lynn Whitfield and what she does in her more subtle adult performance, she's giving a lot more of this complex emotional depth and while also showing kind of like a vulnerability as a mother, as a wife knowing that her husband is doing these things like there there's a lot more going on with her as a character and i still kind of feel that journey smollett maybe should have been nominated in that category but i found so much more strength and performance power with kind of everything else that lynn whitfield was doing what did you think of lynn whitfield as the as the mom of the house
1: well i think i agree with you although i'm i agree with you also that it's it's tempting to Remove that credit if you don't see her as a principal character, Lynn Whitfield. Right. the The thing that's interesting about her performance is that it is so restrained. From the moment, like I, I feel like the moment she is, uh, we meet her in that party. Like there's, there's a sequence in the party after Eve has has found you know, her, her dad having this affair and they're sitting down across from each other and mom comes out the front door and kneels down. And so it's their three faces and she talks about and she's talking about just like mom stuff like put yourself to bed and don't forget to say your prayers and all of that and you chart her journey from that moment to the last moment we see her where she's in bed with her kids and and she's kind of rubbing their arms after dad has died and realize to your point that is an incredibly restrained performance of ongoing pervasive grief that she has to Has to show, and she shows it through overzealous parenting. She throws it through, shows it through anger at her husband, anger at her family, her mother, her her mother-in-law, I guess, grandmother, anger at her sister. Like she, she shows it through all kinds of different facilities but it really is that long arc of unrestrained or of restrained grief that she has to deal with up to the very end and realize she never has an outlet. She never has an outlet for resolution because she's still, even after her unfaithful husband is dead, she's still mom. That's what I get out of that final sequence. And I I think it's really powerful. So I'm, I'm with you that journey Smollett gives a great performance and it is a great performance for some better performances to, revolve around.
0: yeah. Lynn Whitfield isn't given the chance to have a big out-and-out fight scene with Samuel L. Jackson, because, again, this is from the kids' perspective. When they're yeah. fighting, we're in the bedroom behind with the, the kids door. eavesdropping or behind the doors. Yeah, we're always hearing it in the other room. And that's, I think, one of those things that as the mom character in the film, she is being very careful about how she puts herself out there in front of the kids and i you know i i think that works really well with the storytelling with her as the character here
1: yeah me too can, can we talk about before we move on i want to talk about the direction but i also want to talk about uh sister Debbie morgan Mazelle. oh yeah Batiste, sister-in-law yep. lacrosse, sister-in-law yeah so it This is another one that I think you could make the case was more, even more of a performance than mom, right? Because she has to balance being a friend to mom, sister-in-law to mom. She also has to balance the complexity of her knowing herself and her relationship to her own brother and knowing what he's capable of without constantly coming out and saying it. Although she does multiple times say, we're a lot alike right and she's the one who's who's framed as the black widow where every man she marries ends up dead which is played as funny for a little bit but not really for that long right like to the point where she decides she can never marry again it's because she keeps killing people. And by the time she tells the story, brilliantly pers- conceived through reflections and memory. And I think they do that a number of times in this movie. But that sequence where the, the two men are standing off and she's telling the story of how her first husband was killed is
0: extraordinary. And then she walks back into it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah
1: extraordinarily beautiful and simple conception right just shooting you know at just the right angle into a mirror and being able to have everything going on at once but the the beauty of the limited sort of frame that we have to to tell that story and make it feel like we're stepping into history is fantastic that's where we get a sense that this woman is deeply deeply broken and again is is that black widow is
0: going to carry her legacy too and it makes for such a fascinating character. She's so afraid of starting a new relationship. And then she meets Julian. Vonnie Curtis Hall is just fantastic in this <laughs> in this role without, like, crazy hair. But she is petrified of actually starting something and feels like this could work, but at the same time doesn't want to commit because of this. And so her character journey of, of finding comfort in feeling like it's going to be okay to do that— and this one might actually not die. You can see how hard it is for her to make that choice, especially after hearing these stories about each of her husbands and how they've died. And I, it just makes for a fascinating uh, character. And it's it's fascinating because as somebody who has the sight, she has this power that is larger than like what other people have. She's able to kind of see more and can, uh, to a certain extent, um, reach out more and understand more, but it also works against her because it makes her more vulnerable because she can tap into those things that may end up leading to a point that hurt her more. And, you know, I think that comes to a head powerfully for me when she uh, wants, she decides I want to be read by El Zora and El Zora's like, I don't even need to read you. You're a black widow. You're, everyone you married is going to die. And, you know, like, and that was like, damn like it just everything kind of came out in that moment and it really that's the thing that really broke moselle and it just i don't know it just her her character is one of my favorite things about this film like the journey that she has and the strength that she has through the story battling with all of those demons that she's carrying
1: yeah i think so too i think it was it's just um I, i think she's just lovely to watch on screen um incredibly strong performance and i think that's the thing about when you talk about like who who gets the nod for the for award contention, I felt like her performance and her character were actually more interesting
0: than mom in the movie. Well, it's a bigger character. Like, she's allowed sure. to... Uh, you know, she And she's got the sight. And so... For the daughter, hanging out with mom is like, well, I'm just hanging out with mom. What are, she's going to make me do chores. I don't want to hang out with mom. I'd rather hang out with my aunt who has the sight and reads people. And I can sit in the back room. And as long as I'm quiet, I can eavesdrop on everything. And like, there's so much more interesting things there. And so, again, from the perspective of Eve that this story is funneled through. Yeah, absolutely. Mazelle is a much more interesting character to watch on screen. Anybody else you want to talk about in the cast? I just have to say Diane Carroll as El Zora her, when we first meet her and she's got that like white makeup on, like she has <laughs> been burned into my head. Cause I think it's that carries like so much weight in the world of just looking like, Uh, frightening, like a a witch doctor voodoo sort of character. Like she's really creepy in that role. And I think she's great. I just have to call out, you know, she was in Claudine back in the 70s. Another fantastic uh, film about a family trying to survive, a single mother with six kids uh, trying to figure out how to make it work. And James Earl Jones comes into the picture. Excellent film. Well worth checking out. Just want to shout that one out.
1: She's she's also been in a boatload of uh, yes. <laughs> other films. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> she's
0: incredible.
1: Yep. Uh, so it was fun seeing her show up. Uh, okay. Casey Lemons. So Casey Lemons. Uh, now, I you said that this was better than just about anything else she's done. Do you stand by that?
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I haven't seen everything that she's done, but of the features that she's directed, I'm not talking about like acting and stuff. I mean, she's great in stuff like Candyman. I really enjoy that. She's a bit part in Silence of the Lambs. But when it comes to her as a director, I've seen this. I saw the Caveman Caveman's Valentine and Harriet, and you know I liked Harriet. Caveman's Valentine was a really interesting film. It didn't stick with me. I didn't see Talk to Me, Black Nativity, or any of the TV stuff that she's done. Uh, so, and I haven't seen like the most recent Whitney Houston Whitney movie, Houston, yeah. which seemed like a kind of a standard music biopic. So I don't know I mean I, I guess I still stand by you know Eve's Bayou I think is is her best feature film that she's put together I think you're you're probably right,
1: but I'm not I don't want it to sound like it's it's uh, this is far and away her best thing no because yeah she's she is a a supremely competent director right and and writer like she's she's really solid and I thought Harriet was worth watching for sure and I think there's some really interesting conversations in there. I saw the Luke Cage. Thing she directed, I would not have been able to tell you she directed it. But I had no problems with Luke Cage. I really liked Luke Cage, and was bummed that it it went away. So you know, I I think she is she's a, a really talented person in the director chair, and I think she's she deserves to be there. I think this is a great way to kind of get out the door. She'd done Doctor Hugo before. I don't know anything about that, but it was short.
0: It was a short film that was uh kind of following. Vonnie Kurtz hall was the doctor as yeah. memory serves playing essentially Samuel L. Jackson's character on a house call and you're getting okay. this sense of the world of the character kind of setting up this idea of just kind of the tone and everything she used it as a as an opportunity to like a pitch uh exactly yeah, yeah. and it was it's it's solid it's on the DVD that I have i think that um, okay. it works well
1: well this is you know out the gate shows that she is an, an incredibly talented storyteller and i and i think her her career is is one of telling you know great stories it does make me weirdly want to see the whitney houston biopic because uh, you know i i did i would not have until we had this conversation i did not make the connection that this was the same this is the same person this is an interesting person maybe to tell this particular story of of houston so
0: I think I am more inclined to check out "Talk to Me" because that's another very highly regarded film that she put together um, that I just missed. I missed that one. That's Don Cheadle, uh, of four. That's the radio personality who was an ex-con and became a talk show host in the in the '60s. That's very well regarded. I just I missed it, so I I really want to check that one. But I agree, Casey Lemons is a solid director. She knows how to put a story together. And yeah, just because I'm saying like, by far and away, this is my favorite that she's done doesn't mean that I think, I mean, I I really enjoyed all of the films that I've seen. Caveman's Valentine, (laughs) really interesting film. Samuel Jackson is like a homeless man in New York who... Goes on a quest to uh, like a homeless kid is killed and he's trying to figure out who killed him. And it's like the detective story told by a homeless man, like a crazy homeless man trying to figure it out. Really interesting, really interesting film.
1: So that that brings me to Amy Vincent, who is camera DP.
0: OK, you said you had the you know, your one complaint was the the look of the film, the cinematography
1: it was it was the look of the film and and it's not necessarily the cinematography, but I I want to say specifically the look of the film. And I don't know. I, I think when we talk about Southern Gothic films, there's a certain tone to the films that I think this movie deserved and doesn't get. And I, I it, maybe it's choices around film treatment. I think the 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 camera generally moves well. It captures great bridges. There are some what feel like kind of pedestrian, you know, placements cuts uh choices around moving characters around and the overall tone doesn't feel moody or brooding to me and this is coming from you know the same you know someone who worked on at least as uh, you know natural born killers not dp for that one obviously but uh has then gone on to do movies that have a wonderful sense of tone and tenor so this movie more than anything else going from this movie early in her career it's great and what I wish was, it had the texture of her work on Black State, Mo- Black Snake Moan, right? Like that. That's what this. Uh, I think we should have probably called that out in our pre-show too. Um, that's what this movie deserved to be the kind of story that it was to have a little bit more mood to it, to just the treatment of the film. It is a luscious opportunity to, I think, tell more story through the camera and not just what you're showing me on the camera. Does that make sense?
0: Uh, I don't know if I completely agree with you. I mean, I I can understand your perspective to a certain extent. I think that it's there, but this, you know, we haven't really talked about the independent origins of this film. It's, It's a very independent film. This was uh, again, her first uh, Casey Lemon's first film, and was uh, that she did on a very low budget. It was very independent. She did it, you know, after her short films. This is essentially uh, Amy's first opportunity to really helm a feature film. She did one before this called Animal Room. I know nothing about that one. I, I don't know how big it was. It looks pretty independent. Also, when I'm looking at it, Matthew Liller. Uh, vehicle. And before, like in the 80s, she was largely working in sound. So she was in sound and then she switched over to camera. And this was really her first opportunity to work as a cinematographer on something bigger, on something a little more meaningful. And I think what you're complaining about is that she's also on the kind of like the ground floor with her uh, with her legs, kind of her cinematography legs growing into what she will become when she's shooting Black Snake Moan and True Blood and Hustle and Flow and Caveman, Caveman's Valentine, all of these other properties that she, you know, has has more experience with. And so I think it's an independent look. And that's something with this film, even in the editing, like you can tell like some shots... They're forced into a slow-mo and you can tell because of the stutter of the frames that you get. You've got kind of like the the stark black and whites and things like that. There are elements in here that, to me, speak more to independent film, uh, younger filmmakers, less time, less money, uh, less experience, putting a film together with big ideas and trying to figure it out that they will get to do better in later films. And so I don't have a, a, I guess I just don't have an issue with the cinematography because I can see all of the intent and everything. And I think largely it's there. It's just, okay, it's not as good as some of those later films, but I think that it's, I, I, like i I can see everything where it's coming from and where it's going to,
1: and that's totally fair and that's- that's why I say like it's it's not so much that I think she did a bad job on this movie I really really don't I think what happens is it's a movie that that begs for a tone, especially watching it twenty years later that it doesn't have and so I'm just sort of wish casting here that that this movie had the treatment that I see in my head that it just never could have gotten because of exactly all the things you just said. Like I, I get it, but it's it is a great film to to create an example of the kind of Southern Gothic mood that uh, that I don't get for reasons.
0: You know, the nice thing about shooting where they're shooting is that to a certain extent, at least they have all of these beautiful locations that yes. help, help get them so much closer. Right. Because sure. like when they're shooting at El Zora's like swamp house or the market or any of the places that the kids are playing around, like when they're playing with that dead snake, the, the quote dead snake, which always yeah, cracks me up. like, like all of these things, like it just, it, is there and this is again one of those wonderful reasons location shooting can be so helpful for films because it really helps create the world with no extra money you're just pointing the camera at this cool place and it 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 fills it all in so
1: yeah for sure
0: yeah agree yes violent agreement well it is a uh, I think it's a great start to this series I'm definitely looking forward to talking through all of these other films any last points on this one or should we uh, keep trucking Let's keep trucking. All right. Well, we will be right back, but first, our credits.
1: The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Diffie Bosman, Oriol Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, or if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.
0: That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout-out. Buying shirts from the slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to support our great designs.
1: All right, Andy Award season. We've
0: already talked about why we're here. How'd this movie do? It did pretty well for itself for a little independent film. It had 12 wins with 17 other nominations. The NAACP Image Awards, uh, it had seven nominations, which was great. Uh, didn't end up winning any of them. Samuel L. Jackson was nominated for Outstanding Lead Actor, but lost to Jimon Honsu in Amistad. Lynn Whitfield, the reason we're here for this series, was nominated for Outstanding Lead Actress, but lost to Vanessa Williams in Soul Food, which we'll be talking about soon enough. vondi Curtis-Hall was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But lost to Morgan Freeman in Amistad, and Debbie Morgan was nominated for Outstanding Supporting Actress, but lost to Irma P. Hall in Soul Food. Outstanding Youth Actor or Actress, both Journey Smollett and Megan Good, who played Sicily, were nominated, but they both lost to Brandon Hammond in Soul Food. Last but not least, it was nominated for Outstanding Motion Picture, but lost to Soul Food. And then over at the uh, Film Independent Spirit Awards, Casey Lemons won for Best First Feature and Debbie Morgan won for Best Supporting uh, Performance by a Female. So uh, it did really well for itself. Uh, this was the only the only nomination, though, for Lynn Whitfield out of all of the other nominations it received. Um, you know, strong performance. But again, it was perhaps more subtle and nuanced because it was the more you know stable character keeping things in.
1: Uh, if I knew anything, all this attention usually means big, big buckaroos. Am I right? How'd it do at the box office?
0: <laughs> a Lemon's Haunting Tale cost a light $5 million to make, which is $9.85 million in today's dollars. The movie opened limited November 7th, 1997, opposite Starship Troopers and Mad City. It landed in eighth place in its opening weekend and did pretty well for itself, earning $14.8 million domestically, or twenty nine point two million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of one hundred seventy eight thousand dollars. That's on the lower end, but with a lower budget, they still made back almost three times the budget. Not too shabby. Now tell me how Mad City did in the box office. <laughs> no, probably I'm not kidding. that
1: well. Probably. Not oh man! Well. Wait, you weren't hunger hungry for a John Travolta, Dustin Hoffman joint? <laughs>
0: oh my gosh that film you know something we didn't talk about um that you know we'll just give it as we're wrapping up our conversation about this movie um did you watch the original cut or did you watch the director's cut apparently when criterion released this on um on their in their library a few years ago uh, they added a director's cut with a scene that casey cut out a whole sequence that uh she cut out when Trimark, who released the film, asked her to remove a character, Eve's Uncle Tommy, who was afflicted with cerebral palsy, fearing that he would put audiences off. I guess Lemon was conflicted about that because he was based on someone from her own life, but she did it anyway, later regretted it, and added about seven or so minutes into the film. Uh, was was Uncle Tommy in your version? Uncle Tommy was not in my version. Not in my version either. I have, the, I have the DVD from when it first came out. So I knew that Criterion released it. I didn't realize that they included a director's cut as well. So now I'm really curious to check that out and see, um, you know, how that plays. I ridiculously watched this on Amazon,
1: which was through Freevee, which was terrible. I, like, uh, ridiculous. Did, was this on Criterion sc- streaming? Do you know? I'm I check.
0: didn't even check. T- Casey Lemons, though, does say the director's cut is her cut she felt guilty that she succumbed to what the studio wanted uh she enjoys that cut more but i guess criterion did release both versions since the other one has been around for so long it's not on the criterion channel okay gotcha so well it's definitely worth checking out
1: yeah no i'm i'm thrilled that we watched this movie i'm really glad to to be able to come back to it i don't i think when i saw it i was i was too young to kind of get so much of what's going on it's a it's a beautifully sort of complicated family tapestry and i think it's i think it's wonderful
0: yeah this is one that i've loved i've long loved and it was uh really nice returning to it and and dipping back into this world so well we will be right back for our ratings but first here's the trailer for next week's film quentin tarantino's jackie brown for centuries americans have gathered together to celebrate the holidays reaffirm family ties and wish goodwill to all men. But this Christmas... Santa's got a brand new bag. Now, you gotta listen to this, man, because this concerns you, all
1: right? If you have a chance to walk off a half million dollars, would
0: you take it? Yeah. What do a stewardess, a gunrunner, a bail bondsman, an ex-con, a federal agent, and a beach bunny have in common? You're gonna come in on this thing with me. You got to be prepared to go all the way. They're all chasing a half million in cash. What do you miss. Half a million dollars will always be missed.
1: Let him get the money and then just
0: take it from She's trying to play your ass against me, huh? Yeah. That was fun. Yeah, I really at the spot. So she and your girlfriend—that what you felt? Oh, I hope you felt appropriately guilty after
1: what? I I did? Well, There's only one question.
0: Man, I ain't getting in this trunk. You ain't gonna be in here no more than ten minutes.
1: Man, I ain't riding in no trunk for no minutes.
0: Who's playing who? Let's make a deal. Oh, yeah. So what's she gonna give us? Are you gonna offer to set him up? Yeah. Don't do something stupid. Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert Forster, Bridget Fonda, Michael Keaton, and Robert De Niro. Is she dead? I, I, I. Yes or no? Is she dead? Pretty much. Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. I love you. AK forty-seven. When you absolutely, positively got to kill every mother in the room, except no substitutes.
1: Nothing gets between me and my AK. <laughs> it is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011
0: you're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes if you'd like to help support our efforts one easy way is by using our originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered
1: your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions
0: The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show.
1: In season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them.
0: We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The
1: 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of I am based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The
0: 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel.
1: So many great movies based on books and plays like Beckett,
0: The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter. Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Grey, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun: Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com
1: slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. All right, Andy, it's letterbox time. Letterboxed, uh, I i'm I'll be honest with you, I had rated this four stars. That's what was in there already. I don't know if I stand by that anymore. What are you gonna do are you a, are you a five star
0: i this is a it's it's been a five star in a heart since I saw it i just I've just so get wrapped up in the story, these characters, this world. Casey Lemon's creative storytelling with uh when we jump into Moselle's flashbacks and the way that she weaves the stories about her dead husbands all the magical realism, like it's such a fascinating, powerful film. I've always loved it. Uh, easy, easy five stars in a heart for me.
1: I, you know, I am swayed by your swaying. And uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to raise my review oh. from four stars to five. For oh, It's God. really, it's uh. the Andy Nelson Memorial star. <laughs> and I'm going to take that one star from Argyle. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Rightfully so. Rightfully so.
1: Beautiful film.
0: Well, that will land it with five stars and a heart over on our account on Letterboxd. That's at the next reel. You can find me there at Soda Creek Film. You can find Pete there at Pete Wright. So, what did you think about Eve's Bayou? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins.
1: Letterboxd, give it to Andrew.
0: As Letterboxd always doeth.
1: Uh, I, I went with a four-star review from, from Brian Sweeney, and I did it because uh, it calls out another movie that we haven't talked about with a very similar framing device. Uh, Brian says, Tired, American Beauty starting a movie with, In less than a year, I'll be dead. Wired, Eves Bayou starting a movie with, The summer I killed my father. I was 10 years old. There's something about pairing those lines, given what happens in both of those movies, that I think is really interesting. (laughs) Nice touch, Brian. What do you got?
0: Very funny. I I just went right up to five stars. A lot of love for this film. A lot of five-star reviews there. There are a lot of uh, very low-rated ones, too. But uh, I went with this one anyway. Taj, five stars in a heart. This needs to be framed and put in a museum. Texture, atmosphere, sex, love, drama. This is a picture. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Thanks, Dad.
1: <laughs> that was good. That was good. How big a wall that must be? Anyway, is it frame, thanks, by, letter frame? Boxed. <laughs> by frame? Thanks, letterboxed. Frame by frame. hang the hanging <laughs> It's all the fr- it's though every frame. Yep. Every frame a wall. I've been podcasting since two thousand six.